0: Welcome to the Heme Consults podcast, a weekly inspiration infusion for women of color and hematology. Dear women of color in hematology, Heme Consults is your personal space to rest, recharge, and renew your spirit with a weekly infusion of inspiration from hematologist Dr. Toyasi Onwemina. Every Sunday, Dr. Unwemina will remind you that you are a superstar and have everything you need to succeed in your incredible career as a hematologist. Welcome to the hematology sisterhood that will transform your world. Hello, welcome to the Heme Consults podcast. I am your host, Toyosi Unwemina, hematologist, physician scientist, educator, and evangelist of hope. Today's episode is called A Tale of Scarcity, and the theme scripture for this episode is 2 Kings chapter 6. I want to start this episode by encouraging you, oh woman of color in hematology, that you have everything you need. You have more than enough. In fact, you have everything you need in abundance. Everything you need is already here, surrounding you. And if you don't see it yet, it's because it's waiting for you to discover it, transform it, or create it. If what you need does not seem to exist yet, and you have the creative power to bring it forth. Because you are a powerhouse of creativity, discovery, and invention. Oh, you know I'm telling the truth, because you've already done it. When they told you it couldn't be done, you went and did it. Mhm <laughs> When they told you it was impossible, you showed them possibility. And when they said it would never happen, you made them eat their words. "Oh, woman of color in hematology. You have everything you need because you have the power to create what you need. You have incredible power to create things that do not exist. And I am excited to see you create it. All right, let's turn now to our episode called A Tale of Scarcity. Now, as I tell this story, I need to warn you that you might start to experience during it feelings of judgment. So I want you to just watch out for when you listen and enter into a mode of judge, that you would just pay attention to that and turn instead into a place of empathy. I want to ask you, please, don't judge the characters in my story. I want you to have empathy and see what's happening through their eyes so that you can better understand. Will you do that for
1: me, (laughs) please? Yes. Thank you.
0: Thank you for working with me to show empathy to the characters in this story. Now I can tell the story. All right. I've told you before about how when I started my journey in hematology, I really wanted to do research, but people told me I wasn't qualified. I hadn't had much by way of research training. I didn't have many publications. I had zero funding. But they had offered me and I had accepted a full-time clinical job with the promise that I could work over time to develop my own research career. (laughs) It was kind of an impossible situation because... My full-time clinical job was all-consuming, and I had little ones at home, and it was difficult to find the time in my schedule to work to increase my publication record and apply for grant funding. And when I tried to apply for opportunities, I just didn't seem credible. It's like, here you are in a 100% clinician job, and you're saying you want to do research, huh? (laughs) For example, I applied for the NIH Early Career Review Program. My application was denied. They told me that my limited record of publications was evidence that I wasn't actively involved in research. So here I was, pursuing a research career, but my limited time for research meant that I had limited opportunities for publications, which also limited my ability to get funding. (laughs) It was a terrible catch-22, and I felt desperate. Well, my life turned around when I finally found a mentor. And this mentor was a successfully funded research scientist with the publication record and prestige I needed to get a real start doing research. And this mentor wanted me to succeed. I mean, this mentor was committed to helping me get there. And I felt so lucky. I felt so lucky to have finally found a mentor who believed in me. And I was super excited for us to work together. And so we did. We started working together, first applying for an institutional grant. and. When I sent my mentor my first draft of the grant, first of all, I didn't know how much time it takes to submit a grant. It took me a while (laughs) when I finally got around to writing the first draft of this grant, and I sent it on to the mentor. This mentor was a little taken aback. Apparently, my deficits in grant writing were worse than they had first appeared. They realized that they had a ton of work to do, and this mentor, to their credit, doubled down and gave me feedback. And I'm not sure this mentor thought I could make it because clearly I didn't understand what was involved in this research thing, but they did give me the feedback. And so maybe the grant was due like a week from the time I finally started working on it and they just, you know, they took a long time and gave me the feedback and I would get this feedback on my way to clinic and then I would do my full day of patient care and then I would stay up all night to apply the feedback. And so by morning I had a new draft for them to review. Clearly I was hungry and I was pulling all-nighters to do this work and my mentor was impressed. They could see that I was eager to succeed and their mentoring efforts could pay off. And so we worked together, we submitted this grant, and they actually started to work to give me project ideas on my clinical space. And we started working to submit manuscripts. We started working to obtain funding. And I was just working around the clock in light of my full-time career and the littles at home to make this happen. Well, one day my mentor and I were applying for an external grant together and I had not done as much work by the time it was expected and my mentor lost their cool. I mean, my mentor was so mad. He yelled at me. He said, if you're not serious about this research thing, TOC, I don't want to waste my own time. There is no way I should be doing more work than you. You're either going to get it together or I quit being your mentor. And I was totally shaken up by that outburst. I, I mean, it just shook me. He was the only mentor who cared about me. I mean, this mentor actually cared that I would succeed. I mean, they were giving me their time, but they were threatening to quit because I, I wasn't working hard enough. And I just, in that moment, all that outburst, I just started crying because I was like, oh my gosh, I can't afford to lose you. I'm so sorry. I'm not working hard enough. I'm going to do better. I, I don't want to lose you. <laughs> and I promised I would do the work. And I promised to live up to my mentor's expectations. So that weekend, I canceled my plans with my family. I sent my husband and the children off on a trip without me. And I stayed home to do the work. I worked all day. I worked all night. I worked all weekend. And I got it done. The grant came together. We got it in on time. I had made it work. My mentor was happy. And I was happy. And that began a pattern for our mentoring relationship. I would slack in some area, my mentor would lose their temper and threaten to quit, their ire would reduce me to tears, and I would drop everything in my life to close the gap, and then I would win. The manuscript would be submitted, the grant would be turned in on time, I would win, and my mentor would be happy. And this was a pattern. This was a pattern that I accepted because I wanted to succeed in research, and this was the one mentor who would get me there. I considered myself lucky. To have a mentor who cared so much about me and gave me so much of their time, I just wanted to do everything I could to please this mentor, and I didn't want to lose them. But boy, was I afraid of their ire. Like when my mentor lost their temper, it shook my whole world. I would leave their office crying. This happened time after time after time. But they only got mad at me because I wasn't doing right, right? I wasn't doing the things that were necessary in service of my career. This wasn't even about them. It was about me. And they were investing so much time in me. They wanted me to succeed and I I wanted to succeed too. So it was okay. Let's make this happen. But over time, the situation got worse. My mentor was a wonderful person most of the time. But the fits of anger seemed to increase and I couldn't always predict them. And I hated the way the outbursts made me feel so much that I started to work very hard to avoid them. Sometimes my mentor would call me to their office and I would just on my way to the meeting, I would just be running through my mind, checking to see what did I do wrong. Did I did I submit that paper on time? Did I do this? Did I do that? And on my way to my mentor's office, I couldn't predict what was going to come. So I'd started having palpitations. I had so much anxiety and fear. And sometimes I was lucky. The meeting would happen. I would only get praise for my hard work. It was good. But at other times I was unlucky and they were mad. They were so mad. So this cycle was turning me into a nervous wreck and it was affecting other areas of my life. But I needed this mentor. I was winning. I was succeeding in my dream. There were so many opportunities coming to me through this mentor. I needed this mentoring relationship. Even though it was hurting me, very soon other people started to notice. Once I was working on a manuscript, and this was a manuscript over which my mentor had gotten angry over how long it was taking. And my mentor had issued an ultimatum. You've got to get the manuscript submitted now. So I went to a meeting about this manuscript with a biostatistician who was helping me run the analysis. And the biostatistician told me that, hey, you know, TOC, this analysis is going to take a few more months. And the moment he said that, I started crying. I was like, no, you don't understand. You cannot take months to do this analysis. The analysis needs to happen now because if you don't, my mentor is going to be mad. he was like what's the worst that could happen and I just I just I just kept crying I was just like you don't understand you don't understand
1: you don't understand we gotta get this manuscript submitted now
0: I was so terrified and he was surprised I mean clearly I was in trouble and he he just he was like okay okay we're gonna make this happen you're gonna be able to submit on time okay you could see that the whole strategy of going to talk to my mentor wasn't going to work for me. and So he doubled down to help me. This biostatistician was only one of a few people who saw this troubled side of me. For the most part, in my institution, people saw me as a success of the mentoring system. Wow, this full-time clinician was turning her full-time clinical career into a research career. What a success I was. Oh yeah, I was a success. A successful nervous wreck who was twisting and turning to do everything to make my mentor happy while also hating the way my mentor's ire was affecting me. So I was putting up a passive resistance that really only led to more anger. So it was this weird cycle where my mentor would get angry. I would put up with passive resistance. My mentor would get more mad, threaten to quit, and then I would work harder to try to please them and then still be working to protect myself from the anger. So it was this vicious cycle. Well, eventually, the day came when I left the confines of my institution and traveled to a career development workshop. And at this workshop, there was a facilitator who came to teach us about how to say no. It was something about difficult conversations and how to say no. So I explained my difficult situation in which I had no ability to say no in this mentoring situation. And the facilitator recommended that I would be the one to help practice, to help teach the group. And they asked me to role play a conversation with my mentor. They were like, let's pick a conversation and let's role play. The facilitator said, I will be the mentor and you play yourself. And I had no idea before I started this role play that it was really going to turn into an intervention. So not quite three minutes into the role play, the facilitator calls for a timeout. He's like, timeout, timeout. Did you notice what happened to you? (laughs) And I was like, no. So immediately the role play started, my body language changed. I settled into a slouch. My shoulders were hunched forward and my voice was lowered. I had assumed a posture of total submission. There was no hint in that role play of my usual vibrant, confident personality. Even in that role play, I was preparing for the volley of anger that was coming. I was like entering into a physical position to protect myself. It was a role play and I immediately just traveled back in time to an experience with my mentor, and I was just getting ready. And for the very first time, the facilitator named for me something I had been unable to name for myself. I was in an abusive relationship, and I needed help. So over the rest of the session, which was now dedicated entirely to me, (laughs) Over the duration of what was a two and a half week um, workshop, my peers just were offering to me suggestions for escape. The reality of my abusive relationship really, really was becoming more and more clear to me over this extended period of time together with these people. And um, for the first time in this mentoring relationship, I actually began to entertain the possibility that I could escape. All right, I'm going to stop there. There is so much more to this story, so much more that I could tell. And maybe in a future episode, I'll tell the rest of the story. But for right now, I just want to focus on a couple of lessons. So lesson number one. (laughs) Because I had accepted the lie of scarcity, I justified anything, even my mistreatment. I was so desperate to succeed in research. There wasn't enough funding. I didn't have enough publications. There weren't enough opportunities. There wasn't enough access to mentors. And so, when I accepted this messaging of scarcity, and I finally found this mentor who would give me the light of day, I considered myself to be one of the lucky ones. And I just accepted that anything that would lead me to win this competition for scarce resources was okay. So, I had accepted everything and anything in service of this goal of overcoming the scarcity, even the abuse. Even Though my personal life was upended in this pursuit, even though I was suffering from anxiety, I was just like, everything is scarce. I've got to make it work. This is what I have. I'm going to work with it. And from my mentor's perspective, yeah, resources were scarce. Look, there was a certain amount of work that needed to be put in to win the resources. And I was succeeding. I was winning these scarce resources. So, so what if there was a little bit of crying involved? Okay, whatever. I was winning, right? It was okay. And then my environment also tolerated the abuse. It wasn't enough funding. My mentor was one of the few, the bold, the brave who had succeeded in the scarce funding environment. Who cared what their methods were? So what if this mentor yelled a little? (laughs) So what if the mentee sometimes cried? There was no need to question the methods. As long as they were leading to success, there was no need. No need to look too closely. And so the lesson that comes from this space is that as long as we all come together to agree on this model of scarcity, as long as we decide that there are not enough resources to go around, then we can justify anything. We can justify abuse. We can justify withholding information, hoarding resources, stealing ideas, treating people poorly. We can we can justify taking things that don't belong to us. When we accept that there is not enough to go around, we can create false hierarchies to decide who is most worthy. And we agree. We agree that there is not enough. Therefore, we can tolerate being treated badly because we hope. That at the end of that poor treatment, it's gonna be access to resources. We hope that at the end of the pain, is a little bit of gain. I accepted being yelled at. I accepted being reduced to tears in the hopes that I would get something good in the end. I hope that if I could hang in there long enough, I could be found worthy and I could also be judged worthy to have access to these scarce resources. But instead, believing and living the lie of scarcity made me sick. Okay, lesson number two. My abusive mentoring relationship was driven by ill health. I entered into this mentoring relationship as an unhealthy, desperate person. I was desperate to do anything to ensure my success. And that desperation made me ill. And my ill health set me up for more ill health because first, I accepted an environment of abuse. And the longer I stayed in that abusive environment, the more ill I became. I added to my desperation fear and to fear anxiety. And I was getting sicker by the moment, and I couldn't even recognize how ill I was. And the more I lived with this wounding that was happening in this environment, the more of myself I lost, trying to shield myself from the pain. And over time, I was losing my sense of self because I wanted to do everything I could to avoid the pain. I did what I thought my mentor wanted because. I wanted to avoid the pain of their ire. And what about my mentor? They were sick as well. I know that because healthy environments are maintained by healthy people, and unhealthy environments are a sign of the people, the unhealthy people who maintain them. I don't know what abuse this mentor had tolerated in their path to success. I only recognize their abuse because of the abuse they gifted to me. And if that cycle wasn't stopped, I was destined to become an abusive mentor myself. I was destined to become someone who would put people through anything just so that they could achieve success. And do you know how I know that? Because I was already becoming an abusive person. There was already evidence of it in my home. The anxiety and fear that came from this mentoring space was already being passed on to my children. I was just like yelling at home. I, was just, I was just burst into anger and I wouldn't even understand what it was coming from. My husband was living with its side effects. I shared in an earlier podcast episode that I couldn't even do dishes. I was so anxious. And that's why I was so lucky to find
1: people who were healthy. And that leads me to lesson
0: number three. It took other healthy people to recognize how sick I was. So in my immediate environment, there are very few people who recognize my ill health. I mean, they were so enamored of my trappings of success, they couldn't see through it to recognize my sickness. And it wasn't until I left this environment and entered into a space where there were other healthy people who cared about me beyond the items of my CV, that there was recognition that I was ill. It wasn't until I was in this career development workshop with a facilitator who considered it healthy to say no. The people recognized that there was a pathology underlying my inability to say no. I was a sick person in an environment of ill health, and it wasn't until I left this environment that promoted sickness and entered into a healthy environment that I began to recognize my own ill health. It wasn't until I was around people who were healthy that I could see what it meant to be healthy. It wasn't until I had this experience that I was able to recognize that, wow, there is a healthier way to live. And what was important was also that these were people who were succeeding in the ways I thought I needed to succeed, but the difference was that they were doing it in a healthy way and I was sick and was having difficulty attaining these goals. So it wasn't even like I was succeeding greatly, I was struggling to succeed. But here were people who had succeeded and they were still healthy. And so that was important for me to contrast my situation against their situation. These are people who had not sacrificed everything on the platter of career success. And it helped me recognize that, wow, if they're
1: healthy, I too can be healthy.
0: All right, this leads me to my calls to action. My call to action number one is that it's time to stop believing the lie of scarcity and instead believe the truth of abundance. The first step in my healing was to recognize that I had been sold a lie. You know what? The lie of scarcity is everywhere. There's not enough money to raise your salary. There's not enough money to fund all the projects. There are not enough hematologists. These lies are everywhere. And we believe them. And because we believe them, we stop working to prove them false. We start working really To to have confirmation bias. Because we believe the lie, we start working to make scarcity our personal truth. And that's why you have to work hard to recognize the lie, identify the lie of scarcity, and protect yourself from the lie. Protect yourself from the people speaking these lies, no matter how accomplished they might be. Because when you can easily spot the lie of scarcity, it helps you take action to protect yourself from ill health. It helps you identify environments you need to avoid. It helps you seek environments where people are sharing the truth of abundance. And abundance is the real truth. There will always be funding for your project, even if it doesn't come from traditional funding sources. There will always be people who can help shape your research career, even if you have to reach out of your own discipline to find them. There will always be mentors who can support you and treat you with respect. Even if you have to piece your mentoring needs from several different people across several different institutions. There will always be people who have achieved the success you're looking for in a healthy manner because they believe the truth of abundance. See, when we believe the truth of abundance, it releases us to get creative about finding what we need. It helps us take actions that don't make sense to other people who are still living the lie. See, the truth of abundance expands our horizons to see beyond current possibility. It helps us see what we already have, and then it equips us to go looking for the things we still need. See, the truth of abundance lightens our steps and leads us to experience unexpected creativity. It leads us to discovery and joy. The truth of abundance liberates us to do the impossible you got to stop believing the lie of scarcity and instead believe the truth of abundance.
1: Call number two is that I need you to have
0: empathy. Please, have empathy for yourself and for anyone else who may be in a similar situation as I was. I have empathy for the young woman that I was. The one who was so desperate for success that she became a nervous, anxious wreck trying to attain it. I have empathy for my mentor, the one who felt like success should be attained at all costs, the one who was likely abused in the course of reaching their own research success. I have empathy for my institutional environment that allowed sickness to prevail as long as it led to a win. None of us needs your judgment. We need your empathy, Yes. You do need to disengage from the lie of scarcity, but those of us who are still stuck in the midst of a scarcity mindset don't need judgment. Judgment doesn't recognize that in my story there were two victims and two perpetrators. You know, today I'm a healthy person. It only takes one yell the relationship is done. I will not tolerate abuse. But you know, back then, I was so sick. I reinforced my mentor's methods. The more this mentor yelled, the more I did. And so I reinforced that as a strategy to help me succeed. And then my mentor was so sick that they couldn't see that what they were doing was hurting me. All they could see was how it was helping me. We were two sick people in an enabling relationship surrounded by other sick people who didn't intervene. None of us deserves judgment. But what we do deserve is empathy. And you too. You also deserve empathy. If you're in academic medicine, and certainly if you're in hematology, and now you've had the chance to either be a subject of abuse or be witness to abuse and i empathize with your experience in which you have grown up accepting abusive circumstances as normal some of the abuse that you are experiencing right now you're not even going to recognize that they're abusive until 5 years from now 7 years from now maybe even 20 years from now so i empathize with the fact that you are growing up in an abusive environment and you may even be an abuser yourself. So I hope you'll show empathy for people like me and for people like my mentor who were stuck, who may still be stuck in an unrelenting
1: cycle of abuse.
0: My call to action number three is to get in community, healthy community. You know, my mentor would always tell me, stick with me, don't go outside, don't seek other opinions. When I was trying to leave my institution to attend other career development workshops, my mentor would say, why? We have good enough stuff here. Where where are you going? You have too much work to do. You can't be traveling all over the country. My mentor wanted to be my only mentor, handling all the issues of my academic life. But you know what? No one person is qualified to mentor all of me. I'm too big, too complex to be mentored by just one person. There's so many facets to my life to accept that one person is a guru who's going to mentor all of me. But I couldn't recognize this truth until I entered into healthy community. In a healthy community, people were able to question my experience and prove my ill health. In a healthy community, people mirrored for me my physical response that helped me see how sick I was. In a healthy community, I started the process of breaking free from the abuse. Community helped sustain me community helped brainstorm strategies for my escape, and community helped support me through a difficult breakup. You know, in abusive relationships, the hardest, most dangerous time is when you try to leave, and I found that to be true. Because when I tried to leave, my mentor lashed out against me in just explosive anger. They have institutional power. They have academic prestige and so in order to escape and still be intact at the end of my escape i needed community to navigate those landmines and you too you need community if you're sick like i was you need community to help you break free and if you're already healthy you need community to help you stay healthy especially in an environment like ours in which abuse is so prevalent success in academic medicine and especially in hematology total success where you're successful in your career and you're successful in your personal life and in your emotional and mental health only works in community. That ends today's episode. As you go on in your week, become an evangelist of abundance to those who are around you. Share the truth with everyone you work with, the students, residents, and fellows, your colleagues. Tell everyone you care about that there is more than enough there is abundance. And better yet, live out the truth for everyone to see. Thank you for listening. Let's continue the conversation online at coagcoach.com. In the meantime, have a great week. I'll see you next time.